Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 144 with Rich Curtis today. Rich is the author of a book called Change Your Story, Change Your Life, The Field Guide to Rewrite Your Stories, Create Happiness, and Set Yourself Free. And we went over a bunch of great things today. A lot of us in our lives have these stories, I think all of us really, (laughs) these stories we tell ourselves about this happened in my childhood and that happened here and that's why I'm this way and I'm no good and blah, 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 blah. Um, We talk at length and great depth about all that today. I'm not even going to, you know, lay it out just like lately in these introductions. I just want you to jump into the interview. But before we do that, I want to tell you and remind you, you are absolutely priceless. You're not alone. Please, please, please remember those things and, and just do what it takes to be constantly cognizant of that reality in your world. Because it's easy to get off track, it's easy uh, for the world to kind of beat us down a little bit, but uh, I promise you, you are above all that. You're above the monetary systems of this world, as I've been saying. When we say you're priceless, you're, you're without price. That's how valuable you are. There's, again, a podcast episode called You Are Priceless. Go back and listen to that. I don't remember what number it is, but you can search it on our website, powerhumans.com slash podcast. And please, 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 especially remember you're not alone. A lot of times people get down on themselves thinking they're alone for whatever reason. I'm not coming down on you for maybe falling into that uh, place, that trap perhaps. But uh, please remember, you are priceless. You're not alone. And reach out if you need to. Uh, Info at EmpowerHumans.com, at Empower101 on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, again, real quick, our challenges, study. I want you to, you know, pick up and find things that will actually uh, encourage, inspire, and uplift you. Uh, Keep your mind engaged. Keep your mind right and uh, just keep ourselves in tune. If you haven't been studying, start studying. If you have been, keep studying. It's just that simple, my friends. And our our second challenge is make great moments. As we sit here now, I'm recording this in about 10 or 15 minutes. I'm going outside with my youngest son uh, to work on riding a bike. He's nine years old, but he hasn't. uh, (laughs) We lived in L.A. for a while. We weren't able to get out and ride bikes the the way we would have liked to. you know, people learn this at different ages. Some adults don't know how. If that's if you're that way, I encourage you to try. Uh, but in any event, find ways to spend time together. And something like this is something productive for him and his life too. Uh, of course, as you guys know, we spend time and we do Legos. And we uh, last night we had a movie night, but we spend the day working. They're on spring break. Uh, just find ways with whatever whatever your circumstances are to find joy and make great moments. I found that there's joy and happiness to be found. Everywhere at any given time, no matter what's going on, whatever's going, what we may perceive right or or wrong, uh, there's joy and happiness to be found therein, no matter what. And I know that's a very bold and profound statement, but I say it with boldness because I found it to be absolutely true. Find those things and make those great moments, no matter what direction and things we can and can't control in our lives, no matter what direction life takes us and whatever we can and can't control in our lives. Last challenge, very simple. Let's keep doing this podcast together, my friends. Rich has this great book. You can also find everything at richcurtis.com, just as it sounds. And, you know, without further ado, let's just jump right in. Here we are with the one and only Rich Curtis today. We are pleased and excited to welcome uh, Rich Curtis today, author, coach, story expert. I like that title too, Rich. And then, of course, expert in happiness, which is what you set out to do when when we started with all this, but how are you today? First of all, Rich, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good to meet you, Phil. Yeah. We're meeting virtually. This is another zoom uh, thing. This whole zoom thing has become pretty (laughs) mainstream uh, of late. Uh, But you know, it allows us all to talk uh, all over the world. We had someone on from South of France a couple weeks ago. Uh, So the miracles of our time, but anyway, you're coming to us from uh, Northern California, like near Lake Tahoe, you said. Yeah, I'm in a little mountain town called Placerville that's about 45 minutes uh, west of Lake Tahoe. So we're right on the western slope of the Sierras, near where gold was discovered, uh, kind of the birthplace of California. So it's a it's wow. a great launch pad for pretty much any outdoor adventure you can think of. That sounds beautiful. I've, I've been up that way. It's a beautiful country up there. Is it, is it warming up yet, by the way? <laughs> Yeah, spring, well, we're about to get hammered with a week of rain. We always get like a really warm week and then we get hammered with a, one more week of rain before we're really into it. But yeah, right now it's in the low to mid 70s, all the wildflowers. And we were just on this canyon hike the other day where it's, I mean, it's just solid hillside of golden poppies, just like a full orange hillside. It's, it's gorgeous here this time of year and the, the red buds blooming. So we're in full on spring here. Cool, cool. 
Well, we're starting to get that way. I'm in Las Vegas, so spring will become scorching hot before you know it out here. But uh, <laughs> in any case, did, did you have you yeah, spent? I bet. It sounds like you spent much of your life out west. Is that is that right? Yeah, I was I was born in Brockton, Massachusetts, but we moved to California when I was two years old. So I've spent uh, my entire life out here and my entire working life before I was a real estate entrepreneur and, and, and then the, the uh, coaching um, and speaking that I do now, I was mm. a raft guide and a mountain guide for over a decade. So um, California, Oregon, uh, Nevada, Idaho, Arizona, um, those were kind of uh, my stomping grounds for over a decade, sort of circling through all the rivers of the West and the mountains as well. Wow. It's beautiful. Well, and speaking of that history and going back to when you were two, and uh, you talk about, you know, the word story <laughs> has a lot of uh, connotations for people. It's a very kind of general word. And it seems most people like stories. We watch movies. We, we tell each other stories and hopefully we tell them well so people want to listen. But uh, talk to me about the history, uh, you know, your history bringing, bringing you to uh, where you're helping people so much with this concept and kind of what we mean when we talk about story and context of what you do. Because you have this book, by the way. Um, change your story, change your life. And uh, the subtitle is the field guide to rewrite your stories, create happiness and set yourself free, which I like, especially the set yourself free part. But again, I'm getting long winded. Tell me your story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, uh, there's sort of two versions of story. There's stories you're you're telling and sharing out loud. There's our sort of lived oral tradition, and then there's your personal internal stories. And that's that's where I do most of my work is on the the stories you're carrying inside, um, and uh, primarily on the ones you you don't know you have yet. So we we all have a story about every part of our our life. You have a story about who you are uh, as a father, as a man, as a podcaster. You know, uh, if you're married, you have a story about who you are as a husband. Um, you have a story about every aspect of your life, who you are as an athlete, you know, who, who you are, um, you know, in a social setting in your social group. And so you have all these stories and all of these stories guide your outcomes. But for the most part, you've never said them out loud. You've never written them down. You've never read them. You've never even thought about them or, or tried to decide whether those stories are taking you where you want to go or not. So it'd be like getting in the car in the morning and you turn it on and the GPS comes on and it starts giving you directions and you just follow mm -hmm. them. Yeah. But you never take the time to check the destination or see where it's taking you. Um, and for the most part, that's how we're all living our life um, until we begin to be conscious of these stories. So, you know, Carl yeah. Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Um, and that's, mm. that's really the core of what's happening with your personal stories. They're guiding all your outcomes. You're in charge of them. In fact, you wrote them for the most part, except for a few you may be internalized from others. Um, and right now, you you just think it's fate. This is how this is how it's supposed to be. This is what was supposed to happen to me. But in truth, you can become um, the active architect of your own outcomes in your own life by taking control of those stories. Yeah. Um, which is not something that I. Uh, it's not a concept that I innately knew it, it, uh, it came to me in, in an epiphany. And I think like some people have their epiphanies, you know, trekking in the Andes under a starry night on ayahuasca or others, maybe in a sweat lodge or with a spiritual leader at their church. But mine is yeah. far less glamorous. I had my epiphany circling a Costco parking lot, screaming at my brother on my cell phone. Huh. <laughs> we were, we we're having a fight and, uh, um, he was, he was upset with me cause he just moved back to California after 20 years and I wasn't spending as much time with him um, as, uh, as he wanted, but our mom had, had died. Our mom died suddenly and unexpectedly a, uh, a few years before this particular argument and about 41 mm -hmm. days before the birth of my first child. So he almost met her. So it was really close, but, um, wow. so I'm having this argument with my brother and in this argument, of course, the backstory is our mom's death. And, uh, we're two years down the road of this. Uh, and I've been really suffering, uh, for these two years after my mom's death. I was really in the, in the grips of um, depression, anxiety, frustration. Uh, it, it just, it threw me for an absolute loop. And I'm having this argument with my brother and I finally screamed out, I'm failing Anne, that's my wife. I'm failing you and we failed mom. She fought for all of us every day of her life and we just stood there and watched her die. We didn't fight for her. Mm. And uh, I hit the brakes on the truck. I was so stunned when that came out of my mouth. Unbeknownst to me, there's a little Costco security guard in like a golf cart who had apparently been notified that there's a crazy man circling the Costco screaming into his cell phone. <laughs> he almost <laughs> hit me because I literally slammed the brakes on the truck and I sat there and I couldn't believe that that story was inside me that for two years, I believed at the, at the core of my being that I just stood there and watched my mom die, that I didn't fight for her. 
And instantly I knew that that was what was making me sick. That was what was causing all of the depression, uh, the anxiety, the, the frustration, the sadness, um, just the inability to get back to a state of happiness was all being caused by this one bad story. And I didn't know it was there. I'd never said that out loud. I'd never thought that even, you know, I'd never like in the dark of night sitting with a whiskey on the couch, even thought I failed my mom. It never even came into my conscious mind. And there it was. That, that was the story that was causing all my pain. Mm. And so in that moment, you know, I, I had to ask myself, you know, one, is this true? And then beyond that, I came to the question of even if it's true, does it serve me? And in my case, the answer to both of those was no, it's not true. And it's certainly not serving me. It's absolutely killing me. And so I looked back at the day of my mom's death. And one of the things that was challenging was but she had a DNR, a do not resuscitate order, which essentially means if we're sure this is only going one way, then you have to stop working on me and let it go. Mm, and yeah. she was lucid enough in the morning, at about four in the morning in the ER, I, I, you know, she was lucid enough for, and I was holding the DNR. I'd brought it in and I said, mom, you can rescind this verbally now. The hospital will honor that. And she said, no, I want that to stand. And I handed the DNR over, even though I knew what that, that meant. You know, I, I worked as a professional rescuer in the outdoor industry. I know exactly what happens when someone has one of those and things are going bad. But I handed it over anyway. I respected her wishes. And uh, she was a devout Catholic. Um, and we, were, we, were, we were raised Catholic. And so mm -hmm. we got the priest out to do the final sacrament for her that day. And then later in the day, you know, her and my father had been married 50 years, had a tremendous relationship. And my dad was, you know, in a chair next to the bed and he couldn't get to her. He couldn't, couldn't physically get to her. And so, and I couldn't figure out the bed. So I got the nurse over there to get the bed rail down so he could get in and cuddle her and comfort her. And then she had this oxygen mask on her face and it was freaking her out. She never liked things on her, on her face. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to the, the nurse. I said, what is that doing? And she said, well, that, that's going to extend her life five, 10 minutes. I said, then get that off her face. You know, like, so I went back to that day and I realized I actually fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. Yes. I, I, we couldn't do anything else. You know, yeah. we, we were in the position of having to just facilitate her last experience on this planet. And I went through step by step and realized I did everything I could to make her as comfortable um, and as loved as she could. And at the, at the moment of her death, we'd gotten 18 family members had come in. There were 18 people in the room with her at, you know, at the moment of her death. Almost all of them had a hand on her somewhere, on her leg, on her shoulder, on her head. My dad was cuddling her. And so we did everything we could to support her. And so when you look at those two stories, we didn't fight for mom. We just stood there and watched her die. Or I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. Yeah. Those stories are equally true. But wow. one of them was ruining my life. And one of them serves me. And one of them sets me free. And one of them lets me have peace about the day my mom died. And once I realized that, and once I'd done the work to rewrite and, and, and implant that new story in my subconscious once, it just opened the door that any area of your life in which you're suffering, any area of your life that you're not happy with, that's not working, you've got a story there. And if you just ask yourself, what's my story here? Is it true? And whether it's true or not, is it serving me? That'll lead you down the path of, of writing better stories and having better outcomes. And you can't do all the next steps of really achieving a resilient version of happiness until you've cleared these bad stories out of your way, until you've brought them into the light yeah. and made a decision about them. Mm. That, that is a powerful account from your life. And thank you for, uh, you know, being vulnerable and sharing all that because, I mean, it sounds like uh, obviously the death of a loved one, especially a mother, is, is a pivotal point and painful experience for most and all these sorts of things. And, and so I wonder, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things here, but in light of your story and in light of, you know, you talk about the Costco thing at the beginning, <laughs> what is it that we can do as people to uncover these stories? Uh, in other words, I guess we don't have to all go circle parking lot at Costco yelling into our phone. Cause that, that would create a lot of commotions at Costco. <laughs> but <laughs> aside from that, which that was the case with you, is there, is there some particular kind of set of circumstances or habits we can keep ourselves in regularly to, to be aware of, you know, conscious of and own these stories kind of like what happened with you, whether it's at Costco parking lot or not. Yeah. And, you know, so I stumbled upon this by accident and that 
uh, once I realized it, I said, I, I got to figure this out. So mm -hmm. I went on a, a two-year deep dive into the neuroscience of story and the power of story and happiness. And, and that's what drove me to, to eventually write the book. And so even though I stumbled on it by accident, what I've discovered is that there's, there's a really clear and easy pathway to sort of get to these things. Um, and I, I tell people that uh, the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the questions we ask ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and so the questions are going to allow you to identify uh, these bad stories. And so when you're, when you're, when you're suffering, when you're, when you're not happy with an area of your life. And I always, I always stammer when I use the word suffering, because I tell people, you know, if you see someone in their chest is rising and falling, they're suffering. You know, one of the things I realized um, in those two years was nobody around me knew. Uh, and, and men are worse at this than women. We're real good at hiding when uh, we're hurting yeah. for a lot of, you know, due to a lot of learned behaviors over the years. But, uh, you know, I was, I, was a, I was a good dad. I was, uh, you know, a, a, a really successful real estate entrepreneur. I could go out to drinks with my buddies. Nobody knew. Uh, and, and, and the number one sort of reaction from friends who read the book was, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I had, I had no idea. And so, uh, but when I say suffering, people just have this really negative reaction to that word. In fact, it was originally in the book title and I had to, I had to take it out because it was just so much negative reaction to the, to the word suffering. But truly, when you have these bad stories that are, that are controlling your outcomes and sort of constantly steering you to these negative places and these negative outcomes, you're suffering. And the way out of that suffering um, is by asking yourself these important questions. So whether you're, you know, struggling with body image issues, weight issues, relationship issues in your marriage, relationship issues with your children, um, you know, career issues, uh, or, you know, entrepreneur, you know, for anybody listening, who's actively involved in entrepreneurship, there's all sort of, um, crises of confidence that come along with being an entrepreneur and all of those things uh, have a story behind them. So if you just sit for a moment and think about what, what's the thing that, I'm least happy with in my life or what's the thing I'm struggling with the most right now. And you ask yourself, what's my story about this? Um, then that will lead you to get that out. And once you've got that story out, you can, you can ask yourself those two really important questions. You know, is this true? And even if it's true, does it serve me? And if the answer is no, then uh, I teach people the story evolution process, which is a four-step sort of really simple process for rewriting the story. Um, but it's important to, to do the process because one of the things I think the self-help industry can be a bit complicit in, in getting people to sort of rename and keep their problems, right? We, we can tell people, you've got a bad story. And they say, oh yeah, that's what's going on. I've got a bad story about this. And then they move on. They feel better momentarily, but they haven't fixed that story. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons you can, you can lose all the weight and you can still feel terrible about your body. You can still have the same body image issues you had before you lost the weight because you didn't change the story you had about yourself. You know, you, you can, you can, uh, uh, you know, avoid the divorce and you can, you can reconcile and you can move forward, but you still don't feel like a good husband or a good wife because you haven't rewritten the story you had about yourself in, in that situation. And so, um, taking the time to do the work, it's not rocket science. It's pretty simple, uh, but it does take a little bit of, of time and effort to do and rewrite these stories. That's what's going to get you past that. So use the questions yeah. to identify the stories and then use these four steps, which we can go through, uh, to, to actively rewrite those stories. I see. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. And before we do all that, what other examples, if you don't mind, um, and I know you work with lots of different people uh, as a coach and various things that you do. Um, what are some examples of stories, you know, obviously without naming names or anything, or the, what are the kinds of stories, maybe especially in light of some of the topics you just brought up in terms of, you know, uh, people's body image issues and weight or relationships or parenting. Uh, what are some examples of some of these things that people, again, obviously we don't have to name names or anything, but I think a lot of people can relate to the concept of stories. Do you want to share any other examples? Obviously you shared a very poignant one from your own life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anything that I share, I have permission to share from, um, from people, uh, you know, but you know, I was at a conference uh, once, a real estate conference actually, and uh, discussing the research from my, my book with a guy. And mm -hmm. as almost always happens, people will instantly hit me with something they're struggling with when we have this conversation. And uh, for him, he had had a rough upbringing. He had had um, violence in the home. Mm -hmm. And so he had been avoiding having children because he was, uh, he felt like he'd be a bad dad because his example was of a violent, uh, bad dad. 
and, and he was, uh, at the time, I, th I think he was three or four months away from being a dad. So he was, it, it was going to happen. Uh, and, and he was terrified really. He was terrified of being a bad father. Uh, and so I, I asked him to tell, tell me his story about that. You know, what do you, what do you mean by that? And the story that he told essentially amounted to because I grew up in this violent home, because I grew up with this father figure that was like this, that's baked into me. That's built into me. That's, that's going to come out, you know? Um, but then when you followed up with him with questions, well, do you, do you think you'll be, do you actually think you'd be violent with, with a child? Have you ever been violent with a child? Would you ever want to make someone feel the way you felt? All the answers to those questions were no. In fact, his lived mm -hmm. experience of being in a violent home made him vehemently opposed to violence in any form. He didn't, he didn't like to watch violent TV shows. He didn't, you know, he wouldn't watch boxing or MMA with his friends. He, he had a, just a, a sort of no violence across the board policy in his life. And yeah. so he had this story that he had internalized, um, you know, because of his childhood, but the reality was he was, uh, it was a huge man, by the way, he was certainly physically capable of violence. He was a big, big guy, yeah. but, uh, he was vehemently opposed to that in every way. It was so contrary to his personal programming to ever be violent that, that, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be an outcome for him. It, it just wasn't possible for him. And so him taking the time to look at that story and say, well, well, yeah, here's, here's the story of, of what my role model was, but the story of who I am is totally different. And that allowed him to work through the process to set him free and start to feel a sense of calm about bringing a child into his life. Mm. Um, and, and time and time again, I encounter these stories, you know, some of which we've written for ourselves, like mine, the one about my mom. I wrote that 100% for myself. Nobody in my life ever inferred that we failed my mother you know, on the day of her death. In his case, you know, that story, uh, that was kind of given to him through these experiences with an adult. And, and so often, uh, someone will come to me who's stuck in their life. And, and the thing that's keeping them stuck happened 20, 30 years ago. These are stories, you know, an instant, uh, you know, an utterance from a parent or an uncle or a coach or a teacher that convinced them they weren't worthy or they weren't capable that created this story in them that's been lived out through, through their entire life. Mm. Um, wow. Another sort of less intense example was even in my own life. Um, when I went into real estate, I had been, you know, making $8,000 a year living in the back of my truck, <laughs> touring around being a raft guide and a mountain guide. Wow. Um, and, and I grew up in a poor family, the youngest of five kids. And so my parents had uh, kind of a, a distrust and a negative outlook on wealthy people. Um, and then, of course, that's reinforced by media, right? You know, think of all the movies you've seen that are chock full of, you know, the guy with a, a, an empty wallet and a big heart. And then the, the bad guy is always some you know, sinister rich person, you know, choosing profits over people. And so I sort of internalized all of this. So as I looked at something like, you know, breaking early on in entrepreneurship, you know, everybody sort of wants to break the six figure barrier. That's your first one of your first steps in entrepreneurship, right? Uh, that, that people focus on as a, a financial benchmark. And I, I could get right to the one yard line, but I could never hit it year after year after year. Yeah. And, and again, sort of similar to the, to the Costco story, just in a discussion with a friend, you know, and mentor, I happened to utter, you know, rich people are bad people. And, and he looked at me and he said, there's your problem. You, you can't get whatever version of wealth you think, you know, whatever, whatever you know, financial benchmark you think will make you wealthy, you can't have that because you think you have to be a bad person to get there. And that's contrary to your moral code. And I changed nothing in my business, nothing but that. I, I went out and I started researching, you know, people like Yvonne Chouinard, the, the um, CEO and founder of Patagonia, who does incredible things with his, with his wealth. Even, you know, Bill Gates, who does incredible um, work uh, and social work throughout the world with his wealth. So mm -hmm. I researched all of these people that, uh, that turned out were both incredibly wealthy and incredible people. And that's the only thing I changed in my business. And within six to eight months, uh, it was a long time ago, I can't quite remember, but within six to eight months, yeah. I had broken that barrier. Uh, just by changing that mindset piece. So there, it, it sort of runs a gamut from, from things that aren't necessarily causing you sort of that physical, emotional suffering, you know, like you're trying to you know, break a financial barrier all the way down to sort of the, the roots of your soul, the essence of being a parent or being a, being a man or being a human. Um, we have stories about all of that, um, that, that affect us that, uh, if we take the time to work on them, you wouldn't believe the lightness and the freedom that comes after that. And once you do it once, once you release yourself from just one of those stories and you realize, man, I am making all this up. I'm in charge of this. I'm writing these stories. 
why in the heck would I write such terrible stories for my life? You know, when you encounter people who have these stories about, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'll never be successful like that guy. I won't be a good dad. Who, who would write those stories for themselves? If you took an active role, would you ever, ever write that down? Would you stand up at a party and say, hey, everybody, I just want you to know the story I'm going to live out in my life is that I totally suck at everything, right? Mm-hmm. No, nobody right. would do that. But these mm-hmm. things are happening sub- subconsciously. And so as soon as we shine a light and we do this once, you're, you're really, uh, you'll be hooked. You'll be looking at every aspect of your life. What's the next story I can rewrite? Where can I upcycle my results? Let's, let's get on to the next story because it's, it's that powerful. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that too. Um, and, and I would think with this, the story you told about the, the gentleman you met and the, his, you know, unfortunately violent childhood and so on, on the surface, for some of us who haven't gone through that version of things, it's like, oh yeah, that's almost quite the opposite should just naturally happen. Oh, okay. That was a painful experience. Now we're going to make things better for the next chapter, the next generation. And, and, why, why is it that we tell these negative stories? There's some self-destructive thing in us as, as people that, that we take circumstances of life and like paint our life in maybe the most negative light possible that, oh, because of this, then this. Um, why do we tell ourselves these, these bad stories, Rich? <laughs> Yeah, and it, it goes uh, it goes into our, our millions of, of year old monkey brain, unfortunately. So, you know, as you know, way, way, way back when there was you know, 12 or 15 other hominids running around that could have turned into us, that could have, could have become uh, the dominant human species. Uh, the reason we made it, the reason we won the race isn't because we were the biggest and the strongest um, or even the smartest necessarily. Uh, it was for two reasons. It was because we were really good at being scared and we were really good at cooperating. Um, and, and those two things uh, actually play into our writing uh, of our bad stories. So when there was, you know, scary megafauna running around, you know, uh, woolly mammoth and saber-toothed tigers, being afraid of everything was a really great adaptation. So we learned, you know, uh, you hear a stick break in the woods, you run, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that helped us be the ones that made it. Now, our brains were then trained to constantly essentially be looking for the next thing that was going to kill us. Um, you know, even, even things like, uh, why do you get motion sick? You know, what, why do you, why do you vomit after a roller coaster? Well, when you were running around with saber toothed tigers, if you got dizzy and felt queasy and felt horrible, the only thing that could have possibly happened to you was that you were poisoned. So the best thing to do was to vomit, to fix that. Right. Well, mm-hmm. now millions of years later, you know, we, we get spun around and get dizzy and our body makes a, our brain makes the same connection. It, it can't accept that that's from the roller coaster because it's pre-programmed to think that that's poisoning. And so it creates this same reaction in us. Right. <laughs> and then some of us are maybe more evolved than others and, and don't get it that bad, but um, we have the same thing going on with looking for uh, risk and threat. Um, and so for those of us who don't, and most of us, you know, thankfully, but unfortunately not all of us, we don't live with daily threats to life. And so what our brain does in lieu of that is it searches for negativity and negative bits of information. And so you right now, as we're speaking, are taking in, you're being bombarded with about 11 million bits of information. And you can actively engage with about 40 to 60 bits, depending on the study you read. So we're intensely filtering and parsing the data that comes in. And unfortunately, our brain is pre-wired to pick out the most negative bits in an attempt to protect us, which used to work. And now it causes things like anxiety and depression. So in your resting state out of the box, your brain is meant to and will pick the worst bits of information for you to compile your stories from. And so you are picking the worst bits, compiling your stories from that, and you're ending up with these negative stories and it's automatic. So our brain is kind of the most energy hog organ you've got. If you were not heavily parsing the world, if you were not using intense filters, you'd have to sit around and eat as much food as an elephant to keep moving if you were having to actively make every decision all day long. So we actually run on about 80% autopilot. So our brains have created these filters and we do everything on about 80% autopilot. And so if something isn't, you know, isn't pre-programmed to get through the filters, it doesn't come in. You don't, you don't get it. And so uh, the only way to access the filter database uh, or the most efficient way I've found is through story. So if you can get the story out, rewrite a new story, and then do the work to put it back in your subconscious, you now have changed the filters. And by changing the filters, you're going to change the mechanism 
of how you write those stories and you'll begin over time to write better and better stories. And there's some other things we can talk about that help your brain pattern the world for the positive um, that will help you write better stories as well. But, but that's the root of it. If you were to sit down and sort of program a website right now, you wouldn't type into the computer, make the background red. They wouldn't know what you're saying. You'd have to type something in an HTML. Yeah, Stories are the HTML for your, for your brain. They're that programming code to access that filter database so you can change your, your downstream results, um, which, which is why they're so powerful. And, and there's um, some really interesting neuroscience that, uh, that goes into sort of what parts of our brain are, are affected um, uh, and how they're affected by our stories, um, which, which is, is pretty incredible stuff and makes it kind of clear why this is so important. Yeah, thank you. That's it's real interesting when you think about the uh, associations that we do because much of what we do with our brains is associating. Even you and I talking now, it's we're just making a bunch of noise, but these sounds we're making, we both somewhere along the line have mutually decided by the virtue of the language that we speak that they mean more or less the same thing to both of us, <laughs> these sounds we're making. And, and that's just <laughs> one example. And, and so we're always associating you know, when you're driving and this means this and this light means that and uh, this sign is telling you to do this or that. Um, and, and so a lot of what I'm hearing, and this is uh, my lack of expertise to an extent too, but, you know, I've lived life for about 40 years now uh, as well. So I have that experience. Uh, a lot of what we're doing is just associating. A lot of it has to do with, it sounds like emotion, like this, again, back to that gentleman with the violent childhood. I'm guessing there was a lot of negative emotions, sadness, and, and various things associated with that. And associating, it's like there's something to do with with the emotions. Because when people talk about like the law of attraction, they're like, well, you got to get emotionally involved if you're going to try to. I know some people have varying views on law of attraction stuff, but it's like you have to really put an emotion to the things you're thinking about. And naturally, we just it sounds like we just do that, especially when there's something traumatic uh, we're associating. And so it's kind of like we, we build ourselves a prison in the bonds of, uh, let's say, just negative emotions. Am I onto something or am I just babbling? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you, uh, you're actually um, dancing around uh, quite a few topics that I, that I discuss in the book. One of the things, and that we, and we don't often have time, like in an hour podcast to, to dig into the depths of all of it, but one a big part of the book is trying to convince people to release their grasp on the concept of truth. Uh, and I don't mean this in the sort of political post-truth uh, type of environment that we're in now, uh, <laughs> but in our trust that our senses are empirical. Um, and so we're compiling these stories through our senses and we trust our senses so completely that we that we believe our stories are true. We, we don't get that we've made them up and that we've assigned all the meaning to them, which was the piece you were getting at. And so, um, you know, in the book, I, I try to get people to realize things like, you know, your sight, your sight isn't a direct projection of the world. Your sight is actually a filtered projection based on all your past experiences and your emotions. And then your brain compiles an image to send to the brain. So if you can believe it, if you and I are looking at the same thing, we are not seeing the same thing. And uh, it begins to help you understand some of the divides we've experienced in the last year, maybe, you know, different ways of looking at COVID or politics or, or whatever's out there. Yeah. We literally are not, we're literally are not seeing the same thing because what we are, what our brain is actually seeing is filtered through that filter database, through our emotions, through our past experiences. And, and NASA kind of confirmed this um, in the early astronaut program. They, they thought the astronauts would go bonkers uh, if they were seeing the world upside down all the time, you know, floating in zero G. And so they wanted to test it before they just sent them up there and had people losing their marbles orbiting the earth. So they mm -hmm. created these glasses with lenses in them that would invert the earth. Uh, you know, everything you saw around you would be upside down and they strapped them on the astronauts and they made them wear them for a month straight. Even when they went to sleep, they could never take them off. <laughs> and originally it did cause a lot of stress and anxiety and uh, injury, you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, about 26 days in, one of the astronauts woke up and something incredible happened. The world was right side up again. So it took about 26 days for his brain to create a new neural pathway, but his brain did the math and said, you know, like you, I've been on this earth 40 years and everything's been right side up for all 40 of those years. So I don't know what's going on, but this isn't right. And it figured <laughs> out a way to flip the image back over. Mm. 
And the same thing happened for the rest of the astronauts between day 26 and 30. So by the end of the experiment, almost all of them were seeing the world right side up again, regardless of wearing the lenses. Um, and so again, that's just an example that you, what you're seeing is heavily, heavily filtered. And then we assign meaning to that. So you might walk by uh, this black rocking chair in my dad's living room and think, oh, it looks like an old beat up rocking chair I might see in the thrift store. And to me, that's the chair my mom rocked all five of her children, three of her grandchildren in, and that I rock my children to sleep. And that chair has incredible meaning to me, yeah. none of which is there for you. I'm making all that up. So we get into a space where we're creating stories through our senses that aren't empirical, that are affected by our emotions and our filters and our stories. We're taking in an infinitesimally small amount of the data. We're, we're programmed to make that probably the worst possible amount of the data. And then we are just meaning-making machines as humans. Like, like I can ascribe meaning to this rocking chair. I can ascribe meaning to, uh, th there's, a, there's a, a chair sitting next to me in my office right now that flips over and becomes a step stool. And there's a splotch of blue paint on it. And that splotch of blue paint splattered there the moment I took the cell phone call that my mom was in the hospital and found out that she was going downhill, right? Mm. So that little splotch of paint on that chair wouldn't mean anything to anybody else, but I can look at that thing and I can have a flood of emotion and memory and meaning just from seeing that. And mm. so uh, if you don't take control, if you don't harness, that's a ton of power, right? And if you don't harness that power, it's just a roller coaster or a freight train that's taking you wherever it wants. Um, and so the, the main goal of rewriting these stories and taking an active role and being the architect of your own stories is to take control and to harness that meaning-making machine. Because if you put it uh, at your bidding, you can get incredible things done you know, by assigning meaning. You know, like we talk about happiness isn't over the next horizon. It's not after the next promotion or after you get married or after you graduate college or whatever next thing you're chasing. Happiness is a choice you make and you fight for every day. And the more you can assign meaning to what you're doing right now in your present moment and attach stories that have meaning to them for what you're doing in your present moment, the happier you will be. So, you know, a lot of people come to me wanting to maybe change their career uh, because they're, they're feeling unfulfilled and, I'd say more than half of them end up keeping their job after we're done with our coaching experience because what they needed to do was remember what was great about it. You know, like Plato said, all learning is really remembering. They needed to remember what was great about it. They needed to reinfuse the meaning of the work that they were doing and they needed to do the work on their own stories and their own happiness and get reconnected to feel good about what they're doing again. And they didn't have to chuck out a 30-year career to do it. They just needed mm -hmm. to, to change the filter database. Wow. Yeah, there's a ton of power in that. I mean, there's always power in the idea of uh, owning, and like I, I like the term you used about being an architect of you know making our own stories um, rather than just letting them make themselves. It's like, oh, let me let me take the reins. I'm in the driver's seat now. Um, and and on that note, you, you talked about uh, these four steps to rewrite our stories. Um, this I guess story evolution process, as you call it. Um, do you want to kind of go through that a little bit here? Yeah, absolutely. It's an evolution process because you aren't truly rewriting a completely new story. You're evolving uh, a bad story from one that causes you pain and suffering, doesn't serve you into one that serves you. Uh, but it, it has to be the same story at the end. It has to be you know, based on the same event. And it also has to be equally true to the first one. So again, like in the case of my mom's story, uh, you could make an argument that we didn't fight for mom. We just stood there and watched her die is factual, factually true, mm. uh, as well as I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way is factually true. Those stories are equally true. Just one is positive and serves me and one doesn't. So we can't sort of make up uh, and use senseless positivity to batter away the truth of a situation. Nothing's going to make the fact that I lost my mom better, uh, but I can feel better about the process by rewriting the story into one that is equally true, but serves me. So you start out by, as I said, you, you, you look at an area of your life that you're unhappy with and you ask yourself, what's my story here? Then you ask yourself, is it true? And even if it's true, does it serve me? And in order to sort of do that, you have to get to the point like we were just talking about where you accept that you're in charge, that you wrote this story, that you're making all this up. And so if you're making all this up, why would you write such a bad story for yourself, right? So you have to sort of accept that up front. That's an assumption going in is that you're in control. Mm -hmm. And once you've done all that sort of pre-work, 
the first step is simply to write it down. As I said, you've probably never heard these stories. You've probably never seen them. You need to fit and you want to change them. You need to get them out of you. These have been a part of you for a long time. So you need to physically take them out. So write them down. I recommend doing that longhand, you know, paper and pencil, paper and pen, um, because there's just, there's something about the slowness of that and the process of that, that your body is actually connected to that rather than filtering it through a machine like a computer. So I recommend doing that longhand. And once you've got it out, step two is to say it out loud. And you're saying it out loud because of the meaning and the emotional triggers built into the story. When you say it out loud, you'll feel that it hurts, right? Like I said, nobody wants to stand up you know, at the cocktail party and say, by the way, everybody, I suck at everything, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to say that. Yeah. But, you know, like in the dark of night on the couch with the whiskey in our hand, we'll tell ourselves we suck at everything. We'll do that all day long. Mm. So saying it out loud will make you feel the part that doesn't work. And I actually recommend set up your cell phone. The, for the first time you say it out loud, set up your cell phone and video yourself doing it. And when you rewatch that video, you will see it. You'll see a twinge on your face. You'll see a cringe. Um, you'll hear your voice go down you will be able to see the physical signs of the parts of that story that cause you pain. And then you simply mark them. You look down on your paper and, you know, in the case of my mom's, you know, like I'm, you know, when I yelled at my brother, I'm failing you, I'm failing Anne and we failed mom, right? I would just mark those three statements in, in the sentence with a little check mark that says, hey, this is part of it that I'm going to rewrite. This is part of it that doesn't work for me. And then step three is the iterative process of doing the rewrite. So you're going to look at that first statement. I'm failing you, you know, well, and I looked at it and thought, well, no, I'm not really failing my brother. I'm, I'm not hanging out with him as much as I, I wanted to or should have, but I'm going through some stuff right now. And that, that just is what it is. I'm not failing him. And so I could delete that part of the sentence, right? And you just go through it step by step, line by line in multiple iterations. And then you read it out loud again and you see how it feels. And you do that until you get to the point where you read it out, out loud and it feels good and it feels free and it feels better and lighter. And then you've got it. And if, if you haven't gotten there, just keep rewriting it, keep reworking the parts of it until you get there. And then step four is, is, is the most important part of it. And it's the part that requires uh, work. So like I said, this is, it's not rocket science. These are, these are super easy. Write it down, say it out loud, rewrite it. And then step four is tell it over and over again. It's not, uh, it's not hard but it does require work and, and a commitment. So you need to do this process, step four, over 30 days minimum, 60 to 90 days better. So you're going to tell the story to yourself at least twice a day, at least first thing when you wake up and right before you go to bed. I also recommend putting, writing it down and putting it up somewhere, your new story, where you might see it, like on the mirror in the bathroom, uh, or you know, if it's a, an appropriate story that, that other people can see, you could put it up on your computer monitor, things like that, mm. where you'll see it. Um, and then the final piece is to incorporate it and make it part of your lived oral tradition by sharing it with others. Um, so after uh, I rewrote the story, I would go out to drinks with with my friends and and my family, and I would I would share with them, hey, this is this is how I felt. I was suffering for the last two years, and this was my story about mom's death, and here's my new story about it. And I would force myself to tell it, which was incredibly uncomfortable, I'll admit. Um, but by doing that it made a new neural pathway, a new connection to that new story. Cause the old story, the one that's been causing you to suffer, mm -hmm. that thing is on instant recall. That thing's, that thing's ready to go. You've had that forever. And as soon as you get triggered, you know, whatever that is, if it's, if it's body image, if it's violence, if it's the death of a loved one, you know, whatever that trigger is, as soon as you get triggered for that thing, the old story will come up instantly. And so you need to do this work over and over again until you get to the point where when you get triggered, it's only the new story that comes up. And if you find, you know, one day you get triggered and oops, there's that old story rearing its ugly head. You sort of just go back to step four and do the work, tell it to yourself over and over again, a couple of times a day until you get to that point where uh, it's, it's, it's only the new one that's being triggered. So now when I talk about my mom's death, it's only that I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way story that comes up. The old one only comes up for the purposes of having a conversation like this with someone like you. Um, you know, I've done the work to make that new story actually a part of me and that's if you skip that step then then everything is for nothing you know it, it just it won't work you have to do the work of getting that new story um implanted inside you and and make it the one the only one that gets triggered mm. okay yeah that's uh that's very powerful stuff too i i mean and i could see the value in everything you're saying especially kind of by repetition retelling the story both to yourself and even to others so that it's just, you kind of cement the updated, probably more correct and certainly serving you better story uh, after, after going through that process. <laughs> I, I wonder, 
um, because I know there's another kind of area of this where there's some habits that you talk about, because one of the things we talked about before we got started is, um, and, and that I know that you teach as well and wrote about is kind of creating a, an environment, a neurochemical environment for happiness. And you talk about um, four habits and uh, what is it that we can do to kind of create this, this optimal uh, neurochemical environment uh, and, and maybe define what that is as well, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as I as I did this research and, and was reading book after book about neuroscience and positive psychology, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, and, mm-hmm. and just going through looking for what do we know about happiness? What are the under the true underpinnings of happiness? Um, and it, and it's very clear when you start sort of reading the canon of research around this, that we've, we've had this sort of wrong forever, right? That we've had this, you know, once I reach this goal, I'll be happy. Once I get to this point, I'll be happy that happiness is always sort of over that next horizon or, or behind that next goal. And then you get there and you realize there's nothing there because you made that goal up. You, you attached all the meaning to it. So, you know, one of my, my favorite quotes is if, if you can't feel it now, you won't feel it then. Right. You, you know, when you climb a mountain, you only have what's in the backpack that you brought with you. There's no supplies waiting at the top, right? So when you reach that next goal, whatever it is you've been chasing, you're in nursing school or you're getting your PhD or whatever it is, when you get there, there's nothing there except what you brought with you. And so if you haven't done the work to bring happiness with you, you're not going to find it there either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then that begs the question, well, well, how do I get it then, right? And so what you discover is that happiness is essentially better living through chemistry, through not the chemistry in a bottle or a shot glass, but uh, you know, the chemistry in your brain. And that there are pretty predictable um, habits that can create the right neurochemical environment in the brain. That means dumping happiness-inducing chemicals into the brain so you can create a resilient version of happiness. And you can put these things together in a synergistic way so that over time, you're actually uh, structurally changing your brain to work better and to provide more resilient happiness. So we're not talking about sort of the, 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 you know, senselessly positive all the time, giggling idiot kind of happiness, right? That's, that is not the, the goal. Nobody's happy every second or all the time. Uh, and if that's the goal you're chasing, you're constantly going to feel let down by that. We're talking about sort of, uh, uh, you know, a resilient, baseline ability to be happy and enjoy life and thrive and, and flourish, right? And one of the, one of the better definitions of happiness is, is eudaimonia, which is translated as human flourishing, right? Um, and so we're not talking about sort of uh, just, you know, living your best life every second, every day. That's, it's a good goal, but it's not, it's not the reality of what you're going to experience. And so how do we tune that up? Like when we're not having our best day, when everything's gone wrong, how do we tune that up and how do we in advance prepare for that so that we're more resilient and ready to take the hits that come in life? Cause life isn't sort of an up and to the right hockey stick linear trajectory from uh, you know, worse uh, when you're younger to better when you're older, right? We, we take these hits, you know, going along. I think we can all see that now. We all took a big hit with the pandemic. Um, and so, so what do you do? How do you prepare for that? And how do you create this this long-term happiness. And these four habits will help you do that. And they're, they're not a morning routine. If you have a morning routine, you can incorporate these in. A lot of them work great in the morning. But um, you know, if I'm honest with the sort of chaos of having two entrepreneurial working parents and kids on Zoom school and everything else, I end up sprinkling these throughout my day. I don't get them all done first thing in the morning. Um, but the first one is getting eight hours of sleep a night, which uh, I'm, I'm sort of uh, marginally effective at since I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. <laughs> so they yeah. don't usually allow for lots of continuous hours of sleep, mm-hmm. but the, the best, do the best you can to get eight hours of sleep and to create a habit and a practice around doing that. Uh, and, you know, we've all kind of been barred with, with, you know, sleep being important, but one of the, the major reasons in a happiness context that sleep is important is because um, you've got your amygdala, which is sort of your, you know, angry buddy at the bar who's always, you know, uh, a little bit uh, ready for a fight. And then uh, what calms him down is your medial prefrontal cortex, which is kind of your mild mannered accountant buddy, Chip, who kind of puts his hand on his leg and says, let's, let's not punch that guy. He's not so bad, right? Um, so if yeah. you miss one night of eight hours of sleep, Chip's not invited to the party anymore. You, you get uh, an amygdala 
prefrontal cortex disconnect, which results in about a 60%, uh, again, depending on the study you read, but about a 60% increase in anger response to negative stimuli. Hmm. So once you take the prefrontal cortex uh, out of the mix, now when something happens that makes you angry, you're 60% more angry. So you've just like cranked the dial up to 11 on your anger response. So all of a sudden you're being, you know, more angry and irritable, you know, with your wife and with your children and with your coworkers, right? And so all of your outcomes naturally take a nosedive. And that's, that's why sleep is important because it's, it's taking, if you don't get enough sleep, it's taking away the natural checks and balances that are supposed to keep us emotionally resilient and happy and healthy. Mm. Um, so okay. that's, that's the first one. Yeah. Now moving on, uh, getting 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise um, a day. And this doesn't have to be, you know, running wind sprints at, at the you know, high school bleachers. This can just be taking the dog for a walk. Just get your heart rate, you know, above, above baseline for 45 minutes and you'll get the, you might not get the you know, tremendous physical, uh, you know, benefits out of that, but you will get the mental health benefits out of it, which is, you know, doing that exercise. Um, dumps happiness inducing chemicals, you know, uh, into your brain, like dopamine and oxytocin. And, and in fact, like the Duke smile studies showed that, you know, if you took two groups suffering from major depression and you gave one group Zoloft and you gave the other group 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day for 30 days, the exercise group and the Zoloft group had almost identical outcomes in reduction from diagnoses of major depression. Wow. Um, which is pretty incredible. Exercise is, is a really powerful, natural antidepressant. It doesn't come with all of the negative potential side effects of the antidepressant drugs. Um, and it also has the benefit that the exercise group had 30% less recidivism back to a diagnosis of major depression after um, you know ceasing treatment. So to be clear, if you're really depressed or you're thinking of harming yourself, going for a jog isn't going to do it. You, you owe it to yourself and your family and your loved ones to go get help immediately right now for something like that. Yeah. But for a you know, general case of the Mondays or the pandemic blues or, or just keeping your happiness tuned up, 30 to 45 minutes of daily cardiovascular exercise is tremendous. Yeah. Um, and it works with that sleep. So you've now tamped down your anger response and you've flooded your brain with these happiness inducing chemicals that have an antidepressant quality. So all of a sudden you can see you're less likely to be depressed. You're less likely to be anxious. You're more likely to be happy and you're less likely to have an anger response just from the synergy of these two of the four habits. Mm, okay. Um, now we add in at least 10. Oh, sorry. What's that? Nope, go ahead. Go ahead. Did you have a question? Okay. Uh, and then you add in 10 minutes, at least of mindfulness practice or meditation a day. Um, and this isn't just to sort of help you calm down. Um, it, it also helps you pattern your world for the positive. Uh, but it does something more interesting than that. Over the long term, meditation actually thins out the tissue in the amygdala. So when you get a, a you know, negative stimuli and your brain has an anger response, you actually have a less dense ball of tissue to work on that anger response if you're a you know, lifelong meditator. And, and you can see this in people's brains uh, over really short periods of time, less than a year, you can see this effect starting to happen. And then over 30 years, it can be dramatic. Um, and so you can literally see you have less of your brain lighting up to work on anger responses. So, you, you know, your, your buddy, he or she, who's, who's a constant meditator, who seems really kind of calm and, and resilient and happy all the time, that's just not sort of a, a hooey-wooey metaphysical benefit. They've actually structurally changed their brain uh, to work better. Yes. Um, yeah. And then the final one is a gratitude practice. And, and this one, everybody's heard this over and over again, and it's really been pop culturalized. And, and you know, a lot of people might be like, oh, I don't even want to hear this again. Right. But I think what's gotten lost, you know, everybody knows, hey, write down three things you're grateful for a day. And just the writing down of them is great. It helps you um, train your brain to pattern for the positive. So it counteracts that um, picking the most negative bits of information preset of your brain helps you pick more positive bits. So you will naturally start compiling better stories by doing a daily gratitude practice, which, mm -hmm. you know, for me is just writing three things down that I'm grateful for right before bed. And sometimes I do it in the morning too. And sometimes even in the middle of the day, I just carry around a little moleskin notebook all the time that I can use uh, for a gratitude practice. Uh, but the piece that gets lost is actually, and it goes back to sort of earlier when you're talking about meaning and, and emotion and emotional triggers is to try to bring up that emotion of gratitude when you feel it. So you're actually on each thing you write down, if you're writing down, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for feeling healthy today, then you're actually closing your eyes and bringing up an image of, of your healthy body. And you're trying to, for at least in the beginning, 10 seconds, and then try to get to 30 seconds and then a minute 
feel the feeling of being grateful for that. Or if, if you're saying you're grateful for your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife, bring up an image of them in your mind and bring up that feeling of gratitude and sit with that feeling because it's, it's bringing up that feeling that's also going to um, help bring out those happiness inducing chemicals and sort of supercharge that patterning the world for the positive um, and, and kind of give you a little happiness boost that will increase all your outcomes for the rest of the day as well. So all four of those, I call the core four. Um, you, you don't have to do them all at once. You can just get them done throughout your day by the end of the day. But if you do those over time, they will create the right environment in your brain, which is now not hindered by these bad stories. You're not, you're not sort of suffering at the hands of your stories. And now you're doing these activities that kind of create this baseline emotional resiliency and, and happiness uh, to move forward with. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really good stuff. Because we've been talking a lot on the podcast lately, just in general, and people are probably worn out by me saying stuff like this, but I, I keep thinking of us like musical instruments that we just need to keep tuning ourselves. And by doing that daily, the, you know, just like playing a guitar or something, the just living life is, is just gradually kind of putting us out of tune and doing all these things is kind of the equivalent, symbolically speaking of tuning our minds, especially each day with the, with the exercise, with the meditation, the gratitude, and of course, getting enough sleep, which was the first one. Um, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I struggle sometimes with the sleep thing as, as we get a little bit older, sometimes um, it, does it vary on the sleep as well? I mean, everyone says eight hours and I know Americans tend to, uh, you know, comparatively speaking, sleep less than some of the other developed world <laughs> is there is there a variable on the eight hours or is that pretty set that we absolutely got to have eight hours you know i think eight hours is a really good goal and most of the research points to eight hours but it is important to um point out that most of the research is done in the west and done on western people and within the the framework of western culture and okay. that our our sleep habits are very different now than our ancestors' sleep habits were, right? So it was it was really common for our ancestors to have interrupted sleep, to have you know a three hour period of sleep with followed by a, a period of waking and then another three or four hours of sleep. And now we we see that as as a health negative, but um, for thousands of years, you know, people slept that way. So um, there are some arguments mm. to be made, and you can go really sort of deep into the research of this that. Um, that it probably has more to do with the quality of the sleep than the actual quantity. Yeah. And eight hours being a goal is probably based on the assumption that a lot of it's low quality sleep. So go, go big so you can get as much quality sleep in there. So if you were uh, somehow, you know, trained or really efficient at getting into, you know, a, a deep REM sleep very quickly, or, you know, and you could sort of increase the quality of your sleep, I'm sure you could get by with less. And it's also going to be sort of different person to person. So eight hours is, is a good baseline to, to shoot for. But I, and I think people know their bodies and, and they, they know when they wake up and feel rested. So if you're not waking up and feeling rested, then, then you're probably um, you know, suffering some of the emotionally negative effects of, of lack of sleep. And if you're waking up feeling rested and ready to go, and you can do that in six hours, you know, especially as we age, if you're in your 60s or 70s, you're probably not getting eight hours of sleep. And, and that's just how it is. But if you're able to still feel rested, then you're probably in a good place with that from a happiness perspective. Mm, yeah, good. Great additional insights. Uh, and, and I know that, as you mentioned early on, you have this history where you did, you know, as a guide on rivers and mountains, especially out here out West where we are. Um, is there any insight as, as to those sorts of things, just being in outdoors in general? Um, plus, you know, in light of what you were talking about, about finding happiness here and now in the journey, I've always been weak in the sense that uh, I always thought, oh, the destination, just like you're saying, oh, when I get to this next place, whether, whether I'm on a road trip or I'm trying to get somewhere in life, once you get there, a lot of people, I think, can really relate to that. The destination is the happiness, but finding joy in the journey and then how that all maybe lines up with spending some time outdoors. Um, I've heard a lot of things about this, uh, just like the real benefits of connecting with, with nature, just put it simply. Uh, do you have any insights on any of that? <laughs> Yeah, well, well, certainly for a big chunk of my life, uh, you know, I would be essentially living in the outdoors from May to September, you know, every year, 100 nights plus in a sleeping bag a year, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a lot of seasons, 70 river days in a season. And so wow. 
for me personally, I've always seen a lot of value um, in in being in the outdoors. Um, there, there's some well documented stuff, especially for kids. Um, your great it was a great book, Last Child in the Woods, that sort of documents the the necessity of being outside and of being in um, uncontrolled environments, being really you know powerful for children and and also for ourselves. So um, and and there's a lot of people who do really incredible um, work with like people with PTSD th- um, through. Uh, outdoor recreation and the benefits of, of outdoor recreation. Now the, the research, the pure science of it um, is hard to show that those effects last much longer than 30 to 60 days, depending on some of the studies you look at. And so um, it sort of makes the argument for, uh, you know, continuously pushing to be outside and, and be in the woods and, and have that experience. Um, but yeah. I think, you know, in, in a happiness context where the woods comes in is it's a much slower um, and less stimulating environment than the one we're in all the time. So it's often hard to do this work uh, in your everyday life when you're, you know, getting up and getting the kids ready and getting them out to school and racing to work and racing back and then going to sports and to birthday parties. And in fact, I think a lot of people, um, you know, one of the few positive things to come out of the pandemic is a lot of people had to take a break from that and they have had more of that time. Um mm-hmm you know, not necessarily, unfortunately, to be reflective because we've had other uh, other things of having to school our kids at home and things like that, but it has slowed the pace of life. So one of the things about getting outside is you can slow the pace down enough to where you can actually do some of this work. So I actually, when now when I go out to rewrite a story, when I take one on, I almost always do that outside. I'll go for a hike, go down by the river. I'll, I'll buy myself some space away from all the stimuli because you, you can sort of be in a, in a walking dynamic meditation, you know, if you can get to a trail where you can be by yourself because all the rest of the stimulus is gone. There's really, you know, sort of just you, uh, and, and the wind, you know, and there, there's something about that, 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 uh, creates uh, a space to, to breathe and calm down, um, and, and do the work. And it's not my area of, of research or expertise, but there is, quite a bit of, of research, um, out there about how therapeutic just getting out there and getting that space can be. Mm, um, but yeah. in my work, I, you know, I, I tend to use a lot of metaphor that, um, if from my time in the outdoors. So one, one sort of thing I, I teach people is I taught whitewater guide school for 16 years and I'd give them these three mantras of learning to guide. And, and one of them, uh, was always point where you want to go and get there. Uh, and the reason it's, it's, it's listed that way is because when people first sit down in a whitewater raft, they see that guides yell all forward. And so they just yell all forward, regardless of which way the boat's pointing. And then we slam into rocks and trees and it's very funny and entertaining, um, but it's not very efficient or effective. Right. And most of us are living our lives that way. We're going so fast. We're going all forward all the time, pedal to the metal uh, that we don't ever stop and take the time to decide where we're going. So point where you want to go and get there, initiate direction, before momentum in your life and taking the time to pause and look at these stories and choose where they're sending you and look at where they're sending you and play an active role. And that allows you to use those stories to create your direction. So you can, you can pause, create that direction and then put the momentum behind it again. And that's a lot of the work that you know, I end up doing with people who feel really stuck is taking that pause, getting that direction back and then they're not so stuck. Once you clearly see where you're going, you can go as you know at full speed. Um, but when you've lost the view of where you're going, and when you've lost your direction, um, then momentum isn't your friend. Uh, and, and I think our uh, you know our modern world is just sort of keeping that pedal to the metal full time for everybody, where they don't get a chance to do that work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like that direction before momentum. I think there's real, real power. And when it gets down to it, these are all relatively just simple, easy to wrap our heads around concepts. It's just we we have to incorporate them into our lives and and embrace the truth found therein. Um, and, and you know, one I guess sort of final thought for me as we get ready to wrap up is uh, I, I've just realized in the last few years, but even especially recently, just that no matter what's going on in our world, there is joy and happiness available to us all around us at all times, whether not to make light of situations where like in your case, you lost your mother and sorry to hear that uh, or people all together were kind of locked up together, but apart during a pandemic, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but there's ways to find joy and happiness the ingredients of it are all around us if we if we have some of these tools like you're saying we know how to 
how to mix it right in the bowl and, and uh, cook it right in our brains. We can, <laughs> so I'm using a silly analogy here, but it's there at all times, no matter what is going quote unquote right or quote unquote wrong in our lives. There's, there's ways to find joy and happiness at all times. Do you have any final thoughts? And, and on that uh, question too, do you have any heroes? I've been asking people this recently. Um, final thoughts and heroes. What are we, what are we talking about, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> final thoughts and heroes. That's a good way to wrap it up. Um, you know, final thoughts, I'll say, I've been using this hashtag recently, stay in the fight. And, and I, I tend to wrap up emails that way or wrap up sessions with people that way. Or when someone's in crisis, I, mm-hmm. I tend to use that phrase, stay in the fight, because happiness is, is a choice that we, we fight for daily. And as long as you stay in the fight, as long as you just keep working at it, then it's on offer, as you say, every day. And it, it's when we check out, it's when we stop fighting for it. It's when we stop getting after it, um, that things can go very badly, very quickly, you know? And so, um, it, I just encourage people to, to stay in the fight. Happiness is a choice you can make today. You, you can just, you could do one of the core four today. You can go for a walk right now for 45 minutes and help yourself get happier in that one simple thing. So, um, just, you know, stay in the fight, actively work at this and you'll be amazed if you just stay consistent with it and stay in the fight, uh, how, how much better you'll get, you know, uh, and, mm-hmm. and how much, how, how quickly you'll get better. Um, Perfect. and then heroes, man, that's a, that's a big, that's a big list. Um, you, you know, I think when it comes to, uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to happiness, uh, research that the, the big guys, you know, Mar- Martin Seligman is, is an absolute sort of genius and, and father of, of positive psychology and, and, uh, happiness research and, uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi and, you know, Sean Acor has got a really famous book, the happiness advantage that is, is just, you know, seminal work on happiness. Mm. So those, uh, those folks um, have just done incredible uh, work on sort of the baseline research of, of happiness. Um, but I always, when I talk about health or happiness, you know, I always think of this quote from, you know, a hero, this a famous surfer, um, you know, Dorian Doc Paskowitz, he had this to say about health. And I think if you can replace the word health in this quote with happiness and it's, uh, and it's the same, but this kind of encapsulates not just what happiness is, but uh, he lists the pathway to get there, which and his pathway is very similar to the the core four habits I, I, uh, I've laid out here. He says that health is more than the mere absence of disease. It's the presence of a superior state of well-being, a pizzazz, a vitality that has to be worked for each and every day of your life. You cannot get it in a bottle or from Dr. Phil. It's got to be gotten through diet and exercise and rest and recreation and attitudes of mind working all together every day of your life. Um, and that man was a medical doctor, uh, but he was more mm-hmm. famous for uh, just being a lifelong uh, a soul surfer. But he's encapsulated uh, in one quote, the sort of the pathway and the mechanism for, for living a healthy life. Great, great stuff. Good. And a lot of extra material there uh, for folks to go uh, dig up if they haven't yet and, uh, and kind of engulf themselves in some of the things that have been very uh, poignant in your life. And again, your book, Rich, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, The Field Guide to Rewrite Your Stories, Create Happiness, and Set Yourself Free. I can't thank you enough for laying all this out. And uh, it's, it, I'm just fascinated by these topics. This is why, why I uh, invited you onto the podcast, because I, I just think these are big common threads that we're all just striving for. And you, you gave us some real priceless gold gem or, you know, gold, I don't know, and gems <laughs> in uh, explaining all this to us here today, my friend. Um, well, and for our audience, we're always appreciative and flattered you spend time with us. And uh, until next time, go pick up Rich Curtis's book that we just mentioned and uh, look at his website as well. And uh, what is it? RichCurtis.com. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, if they want to employ your services and things, they can find out how to do that there as well. But again, for all of you listening, thank you. And until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.